Roles of Men and Women in the Church, Part 2. The tenth talk in a series entitled What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on May 27, 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording has a brief break in the middle and the loss of some teaching at the end. These are the result of the original 60-minute tape switching to the second side and running out before the end of the teaching. We're going to continue our series. I've been addressing various questions. I think of them as kind of secondary questions, uh, things that have come up from time to time. People wonder about what we think about various things, why we do what we do around here. For the last several weeks, I've been talking about what the Bible says about men and women's roles, and I want to finish that up tonight, this morning, not tonight. Don't worry. Don't panic. I heard that gasp. Oh, no. Let me just briefly review what I've been saying. It seems to me that the Bible pretty clearly paints a picture that in marriage... There is a concept that it talks about as headship, which relates to the prior responsibility of the man. Each of us are individually responsible for our own lives, but Genesis shows a picture of the man being given a certain prior responsibility and the woman being created to be a helper in that task, and we talked about that some quite a bit the, two weeks ago. It seems to me that there is a certain sense in which the husband is answerable to God for the life of the family, and that's the sense in which there is a certain authority that goes with that responsibility. In the life of the community of believers, it's harder to say how this works. Um, last week I talked about how I saw um, the roles that there were to play in the community of believers, and that it seemed pretty commonsensical to me that in uh, a community like a community that we have, people gather together around a common set of beliefs, pursuing a common set of goals and so on, that it would make sense that you would have certain people who would have an oversight role over the whole group and those who in various ways would serve the community by helping to do those things that need to be done for the life of the community. And that that corresponds to we see Paul appointing what he calls overseers or elders um, who, as I understand what he's looking for in that role, he's looking for those who personally know and believe the gospel, who can exhort others to believe that gospel, who can refute the contradiction and, and perversion of that gospel that may grow up in the community or around the community, and that some of those people are going to be actually given over to the task of teaching and preaching to the community. Um, and likewise, there are those that he refers to as diakonos, which just means servants, um, those who have some role to play in various ways. Um, I don't think that it has to be all that formal a thing that he's talking about, although there is some evidence that he saw at least certain people as having been appointed to have the responsibility to, to be servants in that way. Um, and at this point, I said last week, the best that I can make of a very difficult passage in First Timothy, it seems to me that Paul is saying that he would not put women in the role of overseer that that ultimate responsibility for the life of the church, the teaching of the church, and that I understand him to be saying that he would not do that. That's what we talked about last time. Uh, and I said that at this point, our practice has been, the way we understand how this works together, is 
um, we have made a distinction between teaching and the role of actually being an overseer. At this point, as I understand things, I have no problem with the idea of a woman being in a teaching role. Uh, I do think that it would not be what the Bible is picturing for women to be in that oversight role so that all of the teaching that's done in the community is ultimately answerable to the, the ones who have the responsibility to be looking out for the life of the community. So, we're, you know, if you look on the spectrum out there, we're kind of somewhere in the middle. We're, we are liberal in that we would have women teaching, and we are conservative in that we would, at this point, as best we could put it together, would not have women in the role of elder. So that's what we talked about last time, and I also said that we is pretty personal. I'm speaking for myself and the results of my own thinking and a study that we did a number of years ago together where we were sort of trying to sort all of this stuff out. Now, before I go any further, I want to talk about a couple of other passages that often come up in this regard, not because I think this is like the most important topic in the world. Um, I think it is important that we come to some clarity together that we have a clear picture amongst ourselves um, that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God and that we have a very clear picture both that we want to be under the authority of the Bible and we want to reject any um, distortions of that picture. So I think it's important for us to try to work together to understand what the Bible's saying. But I don't see this issue as the huge issue that that some have made it to be. Um, it it has a certain weight in our culture because the issue of the role of women in our culture has become such a hot one. Um, but if we're talking about the Bible and the the centrality of the biblical message, if we're to talk about what is it that the Bible is really getting at, uh, this topic is not at the heart of it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say there. Um, now, but before we go any farther, I want to make something clear to you, the balancing act that we're trying to do when we come to an issue like this. I'm sure you're familiar with the kinds of debates that go on amongst Christians about these kinds of passages where we argue over, well, that's just cultural. You know, that, that was in their culture, and but we're in a different culture. And I think it's really important <clears throat> for us to understand the sense in which that is and is not an appropriate way to approach the Bible. Let me take us back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about the head coverings, just for a second. I'm not going to do much with it, but I want to use it as an example. On the one hand, in that passage, Paul appeals to Genesis, to the timeless principles that arise from how God created things to be. He really is going back and saying, this is the way things are. This is the way God has made the world. This is what he, God has made men and women to do in this world. That's what I understand him to be arguing there. And yet, on the other hand, Paul is applying those principles to a particular situation, a particular cultural situation where head coverings communicated something in particular. So when I look at a passage like this, can we ask the question, is it cultural? Well, yes and no. The conclusions that Paul reaches about the way God intended things to be in general are not cultural. They are derived from an understanding of the picture of creation that we're given in Genesis. But how he applies them, they're applied in a cultural situation, and if he were in a different situation, he might apply them differently. Jack has given the example, I don't know whether this is a correspondingly good example in our own culture, but head coverings don't mean anything in our culture anymore. But in a marriage, something like a wedding ring does mean something. 
perhaps one might argue that the refusal to wear a wedding ring might be sending a signal that would be inappropriate given our understanding of marriage. Perhaps the refusal, if, if a woman refused to take the name of her husband in marriage, it might be sending a signal that was inappropriate given what the Bible is saying. I'm not saying that the Bible says that women are supposed to take the last name of their husband, just like I'm not saying that the Bible says that women are supposed to have something on their heads. But in a particular cultural situation, it could be sending the message. Everybody looks at that and says, oh, I know why you did that. And, and it's that, I think, that Paul is concerned about. He wants the men and women in Corinth to be thinking about what they are communicating to the people around them by what they do. So, it, to my mind, in the modern discussions that we have about the roles of men and women, I find an awful lot of us missing it on one side or the other in the way we approach the question. On the one hand, it's easy to find people who dismiss everything that Paul say, says about women, or at least dismiss it in the sense of it is not relevant to me, because he was speaking in a different culture. It's cultural. I don't, I don't need to consider it because now I live in a different culture. Or else you will find people on the other side who ignore the fact that Paul is speaking into a particular culture and they absolutize everything he says. If the Bible says women should have something on their heads, then women should have something on their heads. If the Bible says women should be silent, then women should be silent. It's just, look, there it is on the page, so that's what we're going to do. It seems to me that if we fall into that trap, that we become just like the Pharisees, who basically just thoughtlessly pointed to passages in the Bible and says, look, see, it says we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. Look here, see, it says we can give a certificate of divorce. Without really, as Jesus encourage them to do, stepping back and looking at the big picture. How does this fit into the way God is thinking about things? So we have these errors on either side. I can dismiss what the Bible says as cultural, or I can just take the Bible and turn it into a, a book of a thousand and one rules that I go through and just pull out and ignorantly apply to situations without asking myself the question, what is this here for? What, what is it about? At any rate, you need to understand that if you want to understand how I think about what we're doing here. That's very much how I understand the process that we're pursuing here. That I want to see what is the argument, what is the thinking of the apostles as they, as they say these things? What are the principles to which they are appealing? Because those principles are not going to change and I need to keep them in mind as I am living my life. And yet at the same time, how did they apply those principles in the particular, particular cultural situation in which they lived? So I hope that that's clear. I mean, maybe you do not agree with me that that's the way this question ought to be approached, but that is how I approach this question. And what that means then is on the one hand, you're going to find me at times looking at a passage that says something like, well, women ought to wear something on their heads and saying, it's okay. You don't have to wear something on your heads, women. It's not because I am disregarding the Bible. It is because I think I understand the argument that Paul is making, that he is not saying that head coverings are an absolute good in themselves, but he's saying, as I understand it, they communicate something in this culture which we do not want to fail to communicate. So... I might say at times, okay, I don't, I don't think it means that. I don't think the implications of this are that we ought to go in this direction. But I am not disregarding the Bible. I am trying to take it very seriously. And I take very seriously the appeal that Paul makes to Genesis. The fact that he makes that appeal and says, look, this is the implication of what we find there. That seems to me something that we need to take very seriously. So, all of that is to say... As you see me thrashing around with a couple of passages that we're about to look at, I want you to understand where that thrashing is coming from. 
So there are just a couple of more passages. This is probably, now, in the passages that we're about to look at, this probably takes the prize for passages that I... I understand the least about that I had the audacity to get up and say anything about in, gr- in front of a group of people. Um, the, these passages are difficult, and I am not here to say that dogmatically that I have captured the essence of what they're saying. But on this topic, we have to l- at least briefly look at these passages. We can't ignore them. I mean, we want to know what the evidence is that we're trying to process here. So one of them... Uh, is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This chapter overall is Paul's discussion about those that would be in the office of overseer, and I call it office, those who would take on the role of being an overseer, and those who would be diakonoi, those who would be these servants, these ones who are helping to the church to fulfill various tasks that it has to fulfill. He starts out talking about how if any man aspires to be an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And then he describes then what he wants to see in a person who would be an overseer. And we talked about some of these things last week when we were talking about the general idea of the elder or overseer. When we get to verse 8, we do a switch Diakonoi, likewise. In the New American Standard, it's translated at deacons, but as we talked about last week, that sort of depends on whether you see this as being an official title of an ordained role in the church or whether you just see him more generally talking about those who serve. And I'm inclined to think that it's something more like that. Now, in this context, clearly he has in mind He's saying those who are going to be in a role of service in the church need to be people of a certain character. And he is saying that you you ought to check them out. Make sure that, that you understand that they are people of character before you give them a significant role in serving the church. So... It's not as if it's nothing. I mean, it is a, it is a role to play, and he does he is saying that he wants certain attributes to be true in that role. But whether we should translate it deacons or not, as I said, is is probably is at least problematic. And this is part of the problem that we find when we come to a passage like this. So much of the debate and discussion in the church is about a question like, so is it? Is it biblical for us to ordain women as deacons? Well, that's sort of assuming that deacon is this official, ordained, sanctified role that we have to decide whether a woman could be. I don't think, I don't think Paul is being that strict. It's not like this person is anointed and sanctified and, and sort of floats above everybody else. This is the, these people are doing the kind of roles like you know, making sure that there's food at the potluck and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the kind of thing that the servant does in the community. So I think he's being more practical, more level-headed about this than sometimes we are. But So the question isn't whether whether we ought to sanctify women and let them float above the group like the men are floating above the group. It's just a basic question of what, what is Paul getting at here? What, what picture does he have? What does he want to see happening? He wants to see men in the role of overseers. He wants to see men in the role of servants to the church. And then, when we come to verse 11, women... Likewise, so we've had overseer, then deacon, likewise, diaconoi, likewise, servants, likewise, and then the third one, women, likewise, must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And the big debate that has gone on is what is this sentence doing here? Why does Paul have it? He has this list of what seem to be roles that he he wants to have people filling. 
He talks about the overseer, he talks about the servants, and then he talks about the women. Why, why do women come in the list at that point? And there are kind of two answers that are typically given. One would be that we recognize that the word woman is often translated, I and mean, we translate it as woman, but sometimes it would be better translated as wife, that it, there's not a separate word for wife. That it's just you have to decide from the context whether we're talking about wife or woman, uh, a married woman or not, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so some would argue that what we see here is the statement about the servants that the entire family should be people of character. Not only the man, but also his wife should be a person of character. The other argument is that that likewise moves us along. We've gone from elder to diakonos to woman. Each of them were moving likewise elder, likewise, I mean elder, likewise deacon, likewise women. That Paul sees a servant role for women to play in the church. That the reason he puts it in here is that I, I, I'm telling you what kind of qualities I want in the people who are who are serving in a community of believers. I want the overseers to be like this. I want the the diaconoi, the the men who are serving the church in various roles to be like this. And I want the women who are serving the church in various roles to be people of character as well. I point out that in trying to sort that out, we come to the next verse, and he's back on the word diakonos again, deacon, servant. Let servants be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as servants obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So those who argue that it is the wife of the diakonos that's being talked about here said, well, look, we're still talking about the deacons. It's just a sentence that's stuck in, in the middle. Those who argue that this is a separate statement about women serving in the church say, no, but look at the structure. It moves along overseers, likewise deacons, likewise women. We have moved on to a new category there at that spot. I don't know. You tell me which it is. The, it seems to me at a minimum that even if he, in the situation, if he means by women here wives of those who are servants in the church, it seems to me that that comes out of a picture that the character of the wives needs to be just as good as the character of the husbands because the picture that Paul would have is that they together would be serving the church. Um, it's helpful at this spot to think about, at this point, some of the precedents that we saw um, that I talked about last time, like Priscilla and Aquila, who are, seem to most of the time be described together. Um, they served Paul. They had a church in their house. They took Apollos aside and taught him and so on. Um, so the idea being not that the man is a servant to the church and the wife somehow stays out of the way, but rather seemingly the picture is that they are serving the church together. So even, even if we take it as, as wives that we're talking about here, it seems to me that the implication of this is that that there is equally a role for women to play as servants of the church as well as men. And then, as I said, it's possible that Paul has actually stopped here to say, and I, I don't only mean men, I want the women as well to be aware, anyone who's going to serve the church, that they should be people of character. So, this passage is a tough one in that regard, to, to see exactly what it is that Paul has in mind. But as I 
picture things right now, I don't see that it makes all that much difference in the end. The picture is one is not of a sanctified role that only men can be in, so much as we're talking about the the job of helping to serve the functions of the church, that we, we have things that we need to do together, things that need to happen in order to make it work, and that men and women together play a role in serving the needs of the church. I, I just don't see how it could not be that way. When we go back to that, I talked to you about that passage in Romans where Paul refers to Phoebe as a servant, a diakonos of the church in Centuria, I think it is. Again, it doesn't really matter to, to my mind whether we're talking about an official deacon with a capital D or not, because even if it's not, that's not the way Paul was using it in that passage, he clearly saw her as a significant person in that church, someone through whom he was encouraging them to send a message, someone who served that church. So Paul's picture seems to be clearly that men and women both serve the community of believers. And I think we can see that as being consistent with the First Timothy passage, however we put it together. So that... That's the best that I can do with that passage at this point. I come away from it thinking that um, we ought to see an equal role for men and women in the life of the church when it comes to all the many things that there are that we can do to serve each other. Now, I want to talk briefly about the worst of them all. And if you're expecting me to solve this problem for you, I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 34, Paul says, Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, so there we've got it. I mean... We just got it on the table. There's the, there it is. That's the one. I mean, there's the other one. We already talked about the women not teaching one last week, and I told you what I think about that. Here, here here's the one that um, an awful lot has been written about. A lot of debate goes on about how are we to understand what Paul is saying here. Let me see if I can show you at least the, the form that the problem takes. First of all, in this passage, what is this context about? This is in the context where Paul is addressing... Let me go in from big to small here. Big. Paul is addressing various issues that the Corinthians have raised. In this section, he's addressing the issue that they have raised concerning spiritual gifts. And in particular, there seems to be a great deal of turmoil in the church around the practice of speaking in tongues. There seems to be the idea that those who speak in tongues are more spiritual than those who do not, and he has a great deal to say about the variety of the gifts and so on. By the time we get to chapter 14... He's dealing with the practical ramifications of the way they have been conducting themselves. That the, when they get together as a group, this must have been a fun group to get together with when you look at the whole thing. Because, I mean, here we see they're, they're jumping up and interrupting each other with tongues and prophetic messages. And they get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but they separate rich and poor and they won't share food with each other. And, I mean... I don't know. You can see why they're writing to Paul asking for help on how should we do this stuff because they're they're very contentious and there's a great there's a great deal of turmoil going on in the group. So he's come to this question of so practically speaking then what are you going to do with the fact that you've got you've got people speaking in tongues, you've got people with prophetic messages and so on. What am, what do I Paul say that you ought to do as you get together? So what he does is he sort of regulates it. He says, okay, you've got people speaking in tongues, fine, but I'm saying just a couple, and one after another, 
not all at the same time. And you can't do it unless there is somebody who is prepared to get up and say, I can interpret what it is that just said and tell you what the message is. If you can't do that, then just don't do it in the group at all. So those are his instructions. Then he moves on to the question of these prophetic messages. He says, okay, um, if here's how I want you to conduct yourselves. If there's somebody has a, a message from God, here's how you're going to handle it. And I want, he says towards the ends of, end of that, yes, in 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So we have this picture of let's have one after another, and then I want a judgment to be passed. Presumably, some among you are going to say, we just heard this prophetic message claiming to be from God, what are we going to do with that? Do we, do we understand this to be from God? Are we going to take this to heart or what? So in this picture is those who have this prophetic message are going to be evaluated afterwards. Just like those who speak in tongues, somebody's going to translate it. The whole idea, Paul's whole concern here is that there be edification, that we don't want chaos, we want clarity. There's no point in speaking in tongues unless there's a message in it for the group. There's no point in having prophets jumping up and shouting messages here and there. Let's have one after another and let's have somebody evaluate whether this is really a prophetic message. Let's have this all work toward the edification and the exhortations for the group so that people can hear something that they can interact with and understand. Okay. Then, right in the middle of this, Right after what I just read, we read, let the women keep silent in the churches. What do we understand to be happening here? Again, this is one of those situations. Paul is writing in response to what has been reported to him about the way they're conducting themselves. So I think it is pretty likely that Paul is responding to something that he's hearing about the way things are going on in the church. Just like he was responding to the issue of head coverings. I mean, he knows that these questions are really becoming contentious among them. The problem is it's very hard to figure out what it is exactly he's responding to. We don't know what the situation was that he's responding to. And so it's difficult to say, what was he trying to accomplish? What was the principle that is in operation here? We do know that he says, let them subject themselves, just as the law says. I understand that just as the law says, not to say that the, that the law says that women should keep silent, but that the law says that women should subject themselves. And what he's getting at is the kind of thing that he's argued in some of those other passages from Genesis, that there's a certain priority of responsibility. That's how I would understand that. But the question of the women keeping silent, that's not something that the law says, and I don't think that's what he's implying. At a minimum, we can see in this situation that the lack of silence on the part of the women, at least in this situation, the lack of silence represents a lack of subjection, that somehow they are fighting the idea that they ought to submit to the authority of the male leadership in the church. I think that's probably... When he says that, let them subject themselves, I think he's implying there. This is an issue of the women subjecting themselves. He goes on to say, if they have a question, let them ask their husbands at home. Why does he say that? Is it, it's just written, written in the stars somewhere that when groups of people get together, women shouldn't ask a question, they should ask it at home? That seems very strange to me. I mean, is it possible? Yes, I guess it's possible. But it seems to me that there must be a certain, a certain cultural thing happening here. It's the situation into which he's writing that he's saying this. So how do we put it all together? People propose various things. 
One way of understanding it would be when he says, let the women keep silent, is that he is referring to the process that he just described up above of those, the prophets speaking, and then let people evaluate past judgment on what it is that happened. You could imagine, I mean, I'm just making this up. We don't know what was going on, but you could imagine a situation where in a contentious group where people are jumping up and shouting prophecies right and left and that that there has grown up a a sort of a battle for the for the stage in the church at Corinth and groups you know well you know we've got this prophetic message oh yeah well, we've got this prophetic message and in the midst of that uh, a group of women who we already know are have been pursuing the question of how far Christian liberty takes them and far as far as you know well I'm going to take my head covering off and that stuff you could imagine how in the midst of this situation they might be speaking out standing up and questioning what men in the other faction are saying I mean who knows how it might be happening I could picture Paul in this situation saying, in the midst of all of this turmoil, another way that I want the turmoil to cease is that I want the women in this group to stop questioning the judgment of those who have the responsibility here. When he says, if you have a question, he doesn't mean... If a question should cross your mind, God forbid that you should ever talk to anybody but your husband about it. But rather, if if you're just really agitated about what's going on and this process of passing judgment on what it is the prophets have said is, is going on, if you've got a question about this, it is not your place to to keep to keep questioning the judgment of the of those who have the responsibility not that questions can't be asked but i'm assuming that the that the situation might be that basically they have not subjected themselves that is the idea being they have refused to back down and so in essence in this situation paul could be saying i want you to back down it's not your place there are those who are going to take on the role of judging what the prophets are saying but that's not your job not for the group you certainly you can make that judgment for yourself but it is not your role to make that assessment for the group others have proposed a scenario men and women in synagogues it used to be that men and women sat on opposite sides they didn't sit in the same place together and so the proposal has been made that when a woman had a question about what was going on, she was yelling across the room to her husband, what did he mean by that? And that, that he's saying you should ask him at home instead of there. I don't know. I have never... That never has seemed plausible to me. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that's... We do have to remember that Paul says he wants them to be in subjection. And so it seems to me that, that the issue here has to be something about the women in Corinth somehow in this place refusing to, to, to acknowledge the, the authority of the overseers in the group or something like that. Again, it's the best I can do with that passage. If, if something like that is going on, then it is not a question of women, women keeping silent in the churches in the sense that he doesn't want them speaking in the churches. Many people have pointed out, and I think it's a good argument, that in a couple chapters earlier, Paul's talking about how they ought to keep their head coverings on when they pray or prophesy. So if women aren't supposed to be speaking in the church, then it would seem to be irrelevant. You think what he would say is, what does it matter because you're not supposed to be speaking? So that seems like a decent argument that that his, he's not picturing women not speaking. Rather, he wants them, 
He wants women to be in subjection and to shut up. Meaning, those women in Corinth who, who keep jumping up and keep insisting that they get their way here, I want them to be quiet. Something like that. Are there problems? Yeah. Am I absolutely certain that that's what's going on? By no means am I absolutely certain that that's what's going on. But something like that, I think. The, resp- the leadership in this group have basically said, we are, this is the way we're going to do it, and we're asking everybody to accept that, and this group of women is not buying it. Something like that. Let me just end really briefly by reminding you of the most significant passage in the Bible about men and women, I think, um, the one that really ought to set the tone for everything that we think about this stuff. It's in Galatians chapter 3. In 3.28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we can make a mistake with this passage, and a mistake has been made in the past, I think. When he says there is neither male nor female, he is not saying that all of the distinctions between men and women have been obliterated by becoming a Christian. Just as he is not saying that all the distinctions between Jew and Gentile, or all of the distinctions between slave or free man, those distinctions still exist. But they have no bearing on one's place in the kingdom of God. They have no bearing on one's acceptance before God. And that's a crucial argument for him to be making because he's making it to people who would have seen those distinctions as being determinative. Jew or Gentile, that tells the story. Slave or free man, male or female, they would have known all, the second one in those groups are all second-class citizens in, in Israel, in, in the, the religion that God had given the Jews. And there's a certain sense in which it is true. In terms of the law, there is a difference in the law between Jews and Gentiles, and between slave and free, and between men and women. But what Paul is trying to say is it is a total misunderstanding to think that the distinctions that were in the law said anything fundamental about how a person finds acceptance before God. It was never intended to imply that there's any more importance over one, for one person over another that one person is more acceptable to God or anything like that. That was never what it was about. And here in Christ we see this really radical proclamation. Jew and Gentile was a radical proclamation that there is no distinction. Slave and free, that's a radical proclamation that there is no distinction because they knew that in their culture there was a big distinction. And likewise, no distinction between men and women. The fact that women played a significant role in the church is a very profoundly important thing for us to understand, I think. Okay, so, as I come to the end of this, I recognize that I have been far from definitive. That's all right. My purpose in answering this question is to just try to help you to understand where we're sort of coming from around here. I operate on these basic ideas. Authority relates to responsibility for our own lives and how relatively small is the responsibility that any person has for a group of other people. We would do well to remember what Jesus said about how the Gentiles lorded over one another, but he wants us to be each other's servants. I think we in the church have a lot to repent of as to how big a deal we have made of authority as a thing of power, a thing in which I can can get my little empire set up. The Bible emphasizes authority not so it can give power to people over others, but so that true responsibility can be taken on by those who have it. I think that men have a prior responsibility that makes them the appropriate parties to take the ultimate responsibility for the life of the group. At this point, I'm clear about that in marriage, and I'm 
I think it's true in the church as well. Men and women can serve many roles in serving the community. And finally, these passages are hard enough that I recognize that I could be wrong in either direction. I sincerely mean that. I, there are times when I think, you know, I, I might be wrong about this. There, maybe, maybe headship is just not what I'm seeing it is, and there really is true no difference in roles between men and women at all. And sometimes I find myself thinking, you know, I think I'm too liberal about this stuff. I think the Bible is really spelling this out stronger than the way I'm thinking about it. But right now, for what I have to take responsibility for, where I am right now, what I've described is what makes the best sense to me out of the, what are a number of difficult passages. My hope is that we as a group... I think that given the history of mankind and even in our culture, in our culture there is a danger that we would listen to the the winds that are blowing and obliterate the distinctions between men and women that I think are there. And I think we would be fools to do it. But I think in our human nature there is an even stronger temptation that we have to fight, which, which is the temptation of men to take advantage of the ad- various advantages they have culturally and physically and so on. I, I am more concerned that we as a group are people that truly value each other as individuals uh, who see in each one of us uh, people for whom Christ died and are are not concerned to be standing on our rights and making sure that I get my piece of the pie and so on, but that we are concerned to serve each other. And while we're in the business of serving each other, I think we want to pay attention to the distinctions that the Bible makes and try to fulfill them as best we can. Okay, so having heard all of that stuff now, I've wanted to leave some time for any questions or comments that we might have. Let's start with Marcel. Her hand went up first. It went right up. And we'll go on from there. Um, oh, this always startles me. Um, I think I was a little confused by your use of overseer and I think it was deacons. It seems sometimes that it was sort of interchangeable. Um, that's one question. Um, Another question would be, uh, in our church community, and, and maybe this doesn't, when you talk about the church, maybe you don't mean like a Christian organization, but I believe, and I could be wrong, that we do have on the board at the study center a woman, and, and I've always been happy about that, but um, that's a question that I have. If you think that Christian organizations are separate from churches, um, in that sense, and then, sorry if I'm hogging it, but my uh, my sister-in-law. This issue is really fun for me because my sister-in-law is about to be ordained as a priest, hmm. and and you were saying that you. I wasn't here last week, but right. it sounded like at the beginning that you were saying that you do think women uh, can or should, or you didn't say should, but can be uh, teachers. And I just, I guess, I was wondering if you had any more thoughts about that. Okay. Okay. I don't want to hog the floor. Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I'm, I made the distinction last time between the overseers and the servants. Let me see if I can do that here. Um, I see the the concept of the servant, the word that is associated with deacon, having to do with. Um, I, I think the picture starts in the book of Acts when the apostles recognize that there's this problem with the distribution of food for of all these people who have come to Jerusalem and are staying there and they recognize that, that there's this conflict going on and they say it seems to us that it would be appropriate to appoint some people to take care of this that it's given what our role is as apostles it we shouldn't be waiting on tables I mean, not that, not that we're too important to wait on tables, but that the fact is 
we have a role to fulfill that it just doesn't make sense that we would stop doing that role in order to solve this kind of problem. So they appointed seven guys to be the servants who oversaw the distribution of the food. So what we're talking about in service in that way has to do with just anything that has to do with serving the needs of the group. So around here, when we, when we're, the steering committee, I think, is a group of servants in that way who are planning, you know, we're going to have a potluck, we're going to have a service like this, and so on. I didn't phrase that right. I did understand that distinction, but I guess my question was, between the teachers and the deacons, are they the same? Like, in the sense of being servants because they're teaching in the church? Right. Um, Well, here's what we have. What we have is um, a picture of the... We don't have a lot of description of the stuff, but what we do have is a picture of those who are overseers, elders, who, as I described, what Paul pictures them is they are mature believers who can exhort the community to believe, who can guard against error in the community, and some of whom are going to be dedicated to being teachers, to actually being those who proclaim and explain the gospel message. So, does that say that only those who are overseers should be teachers? I don't think so. I, th- I think the picture is there, there are going to be those who have the primary responsibility for the group, and just naturally enough, you'd better have among them some people who can teach the group, I mean, if you don't have somebody who understands the gospel well enough to be able to teach it to other people, then maybe you don't have the kind of leadership that you need for the group anyway. So, yeah, in my own mind, this is not anything that the Bible says, but in my own mind, I would distinguish between... um, See, at any time, I might yield the floor here to any one of you who could get up and teach something to the group, I don't think in doing that, that that has made you the one who is responsible for the group as a whole. I and the other responsible parties around here have taken the responsibility on ourselves to give the floor to you. So, yes, you're a servant of the church in explaining and helping people to understand something. And if there's any distinction at all, it's that the responsibility for the life of the group ultimately, to the extent that there is that responsibility, rests in this group of people here. So, yeah, I think we could make a distinction between the role of teacher as overseer and the role of teacher as servant. It's fuzzy. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's all that cut and dried, except we do want to understand the concept. I think in this group, we have a group of men who have taken on the responsibility for the spiritual life of this group. I think I'm one of those people. Jack is one of those people. David is one of those people. Bob is one of those people. There you have a distinction in, in that group of folks, we who are on the board, um, I do a lot of teaching. Bob doesn't do much teaching. But we are alike in that I think we are relatively mature believers who are trying to take the responsibility for what it is, for essentially, fundamentally, responsibility that the truth is being upheld as best we can see that happen. Because that's what Paul was concerned about in the overseeing role, that... that that the the message is getting out there clearly. So, but there's room for people to do all kinds of things, I think. I mean, there's room for people in the church to do all sorts of things. And in fact, it's not good for everything that the church is doing to rest in the hands of just a few people, in my mind. So yes, I would make that distinction, I think. 
is it hard? It's hard, but that's how I would put it together right now. Um, the, your third question, I remember. Um, see, it's very hard for me to answer that question because the concept of ordaining a priest doesn't doesn't mean much to me. I mean, like, because the whole concept is you're authorized to give Holy Communion and all of those kind of things. And, you know, I just have to go all the way back and say, but I'm just not there all the way. I'm not a sacramentalist. So why not? <laughs> because I don't believe in it in, to begin with. If you were to ask me, do, does my understanding of the idea that that there's a distinction between serving the church and being an overseer, does that go so far as to, in the typical church situation, would I believe in ordaining women, having women pastors in a group? I don't know. You're, you're pushing me right there at that spot where I'm still, <laughs> still trying to think this through. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember what your second question was. Oh, right, right. Um, the, um, that's a hard question for me, too. I have no problem with our board at, at Gutenberg College the way it stands because the one woman on the board is Carol, who's married to Wes, and the fact that both of them together are on the board, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I have no, I'm no problem with that because I see them as being in this together. It, it bypasses the question to, to my mind at least to a certain extent. Um, the, is there some kind of a distinction between a parachurch organization and the church as to how you think about this stuff? How do we even decide such a thing? I, I, don't know, I don't know how to put that together in my own mind. So my answer to the question, if somebody came along and said, we... we are we going to appoint uh, a woman to the board, just a, a woman on her own to the board of the college? Everything in me cries out, well, of course, but I can't, I can't tell whether that's my common sense, my wisdom, or my enculturation that is speaking when that happens. Um... Let me put it this way. If it comes to the point where we were going to appoint a woman to the board, I think that I would like to see everybody at the study center sit down and have a serious talk about so that we're all clear in our minds what it is we're doing. And that's the best I can, <laughs> that's the best I can say, I think, in answer. It's a, that's a hard, I know it's not a satisfying answer to your question, but that's just honest truth. That's where I am. So I guess I, I can ask this instead of waiting to ask Terry at home. <laughs> um, yeah, contextually, so. in the thing that's always bugged me about this passage, somewhere along the way I have this historical perspective that women in the culture were actually helped by Christianity coming on the scene, mm -hmm. that women were very oppressed or suppressed. So it's hard to make the transition then that contextually what's happening here is all these women are out of order and asking questions. If in the culture that wasn't being done at all, both in the non-secular culture and the Jewish culture. So can you help bridge that? Do you see what I'm saying here? It doesn't seem to fit this idea that somehow I've been given along the way right. that women had were just dirt in the culture, right. whether it was a, a Jewish culture or the worldly Corinthian culture. Right. Well, of course I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very hard to say with any certainty what exactly was going on culturally. But the argument is usually made, and I think you, it's plausible that this would be, that the proclamation of Christianity really has come into the culture and changed the relationship in the church between men and women. And that part of what you have here is, is the beginnings of, of an attempt to kind of find, so how does this work? That it's true the women would not have had a place to speak in the Jewish synagogue before, but in the church they did. That this was a new thing. And partly because it was a new thing, um, 
you find people pushing at the boundaries of, you know, so how far does this go? So, yes, it's not that, it's not that the cultural practice was men and women in a group like that arguing with each other and a battle for power and all that kind of stuff. That was not what would have been happening, but it, what, it's what can arise when you move to a new situation where there's a genuine recognition that there is equality in Christ here and that these you know, fellow heirs of the grace of life and all of that sort of thing, that, that the problem has arisen out of a good thing. I mean, the good situation has created now a situation where we have to sort out how are we going to handle this. That's how I would understand. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? So then are the women being demanding? They're like out of control because they have so much freedom all of a sudden? Is that the picture in the church? Possibly. I've, I don't know. <laughs> but possibly. Together with, I mean, you understand, together with the idea that you look at this passage this chapter, these are two verses in the bunch of... He's got a lot of other stuff in there. Most of it is about... I mean, there's chaos happening here. People jumping up and speaking in tongues and jumping up with prophetic messages. And, and in the midst of this, presumably, part of the chaos is women in their newfound freedom sort of going beyond that to actually trying to sort of create a power base for themselves in the in the community. I mean, it's a community riven. I mean, there are factions and rich and poor, and we follow this guy and we follow this guy. And in the midst of this, you could understand how in, in a community where power and, and everything is being battled over, that the women would be looking for their piece of the pie in the midst of this. So I'm picturing something like that, a place in turmoil where, with if, where the turmoil's going on, sure, I'm going to be going for mine here as well. And Paul is trying to, he's trying to undercut all of that and say, no, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to get together, what's the point of getting together? The point of getting together is mutual encouragement and exhortation, right? So let's, let's cut all of that away, something like that. Boy, don't, I mean, you understand. We're just trying to understand what's happening behind it. Terry, then we're going to be out of time. Can I offer an observation? Yes. Um, I've never noticed this before, but I, I can't help but seeing some similarities to what you referred to in the section before where he's given all the parameters for tongues and prophecy and all that. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's an awful lot of language that he's using from that section above. He refers to silence. He refers to speaking, whether it be speaking prophecy or speaking in tongues. Um, he refers to being subjected. Um, he's, he refers to learning in that section above it. And so I'm, I'm wondering if the term speaking refers specifically to these women speaking in tongues or speaking in words of prophecy, which are supposedly from God himself, and he's putting limitations on them doing that Right. Type of speaking in the church, and that um, they should be so right. That's something for for the men to be doing, as though it were from God. Right. Well, believe me, I have I have paid attention to those parallels there, and I have tried to to see how the connection might be made. Um, the problem is, if it's I, I agree that verb laleo is just used right down through there. The speaking. And you get to the women speaking, and the, you would think that it's the might be the same kind of speaking that we're talking about up above. The problem is, unless we're to see chapter 11 as hypothetical, it is praying and prophesying that they should keep their head coverings on for. So if he's telling them there that they can prophesy, but here he's telling them they can't prophesy, some, something's got to give somewhere. I'm not sure. I, I, I think what you're arguing is very good. And I think if we could find a way of preserving, following it through, I mean, for those of you who are interested in pursuing this and seeing what the passage says, what Terry's talking about is is the language that Paul is using in the verses above. Several of those words get used again in this section, and you sort of ask yourself, what's the connection? Is there some thread that ties them together? And he's proposing that, well, maybe 
He's saying the speaking that he talked about up above, tongues and prophecy, that's the kind of speaking that the women shouldn't be doing. The other problem is that the thing that he couples with it, though, is he says, ask your questions at home. Seems to imply that it's not just praying and prophesying, but it's some sort of questioning that they're doing that shouldn't be happening as well, which is why I'm more inclined to connect it not with the prophesying part, but with the passing judgment on the prophecy part or something like that. Hello. One last one. Um, In chapter 11, is that specifically referring to in church, or could it be praying and prophesying at home or... In I'm, other pretty, situation. I'm pretty sure it is in the in church. In the church, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I appreciate your patience uh, over this topic. We're we're done with it now. I will move on to something else. I would also. I just wanted to make a call to folks. I know that some of you came and gave me some of the questions that you had that you'd like to see us address, and I tried to write down what it is that people told me. But as I'm looking at what I have written down. I have this feeling that I've missed something along the way. So if you if you have submitted a question to me that you would like me to address um, and it hasn't been addressed yet, if you wanted to come up and remind me what it was that you had asked, that would be great because I'm I, I am interested in in dealing with people's questions, but I'm a little chaotic myself, so every now and again I lose things.